Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, and welcome back to Black's History Week. Siege warfare was the most common form of warfare in medieval Europe. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Forts and Fortifications and Siegecraft, talks about defending and capturing walled cities and castles with the critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart. Professor Jeremy Black, in Britain at least, we uh, think of castle building as something that began with the Norman conquest of 1066. I I want to ask you... um, how much did the, the castle building of the 11th to 13th century in Europe owe uh, either to Iron Age fortresses uh, on hilltops or, or to Roman fortifications? Well, that's a very interesting question. And what you correctly pull out there is that there is a, um, as it were, universal need for defence. And that universal need for defence can be very long-standing. I mean, I've done a couple of books on this, Fortifications and Siegecraft. One, the other one had the uh, original title of Forts. Um, And I go back in those to um, early man, if one's allowed to use that term these days, I'm never quite sure what's acceptable, and the idea that you would defend yourself in a cave by um, maybe, uh, and indeed in thickets, in areas where there weren't caves, by either using uh, rocks or fire or um, particularly dense vegetation, because for a long period, human beings were particularly vulnerable, not just to other human beings. That, in a sense, comes later, because originally you've got hunter-gatherer groups moving across landscapes in which there are not very many humans, but they're particularly vulnerable to to other creatures with sharper uh, talons, claws, teeth, whatever. Um, So that, in a sense, defence goes back to that principle. And you see that continued um, at the level of individual, once people become uh, fixed at individual farm buildings, a classic pattern which you can see still to this day in some areas is the idea that you sleep on the first floor. You can see that, for example, in, oh, I've seen it certainly, um, in forested areas in Central America, in Borneo, um, and that what you do, uh, uh, New Guinea, and what you do is that, um, as it were, the, the ground floor, the base level, is where wild animals might go but and is not so easy to defend, but anybody that wants to come in has to come up either a ladder or a stairwell of some type. The ladder can obviously be brought up and brought into the building overnight. The stairwell provides a defended uh, position. And of course, you then go on from that as settlements grow in scale to think about the notion of defending villages, um, um, often by uh, some form of use of uh, natural feature, a height, for example, but then that you would support and strengthen by means of ditches or uh, or building up some kind of um, 
um, sort of fortifications, either through stone or vegetation, which would certainly act to restrict both animals and human assailants. Um, so this pattern, I think, is a very long one. The interesting thing in the terms of castles is that when we're th one's thinking of castles, um, there is, a, in a sense, two separate things to consider here. There are those castles that are part of the defences of a larger area. So in other words, a town, a city, or even potentially a, a very large village. Uh, and obviously for, for Britain, the classic example would be the Tower of London. And they can be, um, as it were, uh, proof, uh, they can have all round fortification. They can be something that you would defend, able to defend against the townspeople themselves. But nevertheless, they're to be seen as part of a broader space. And then there are those castles or fortifications, because uh, most fortifications were not on the scale of what we generally understand as a castle. There are those fortifications that sit, as it were, on their own. I mean, they may have some ancillary buildings, uh, but fundamentally they are not part of a larger urban or other structure. And when we're thinking about castles, we tend to think of the latter group I'm not sure that's always correct. I mean, in other words, I think that um, many castles took on their significance partly because they were supported by larger systems of town wall and they were, as it were, the citadel within that. And you can see that pattern going back to antiquity. You can see it in Sumerian cities. You can see it in many cities of antiquity. But partly also, they're crucially there to overawe the town. And in, you mentioned uh, British cities, or more specifically English cities of the 11th to 13th century. Well, if you're thinking of the Normans, and I've already mentioned the Tower of London as a good example, but you can think, for example, castles in places like Durham, Oxford, um, uh, Exeter indeed, uh, where I live, um, they were in part designed uh, to overawe the citizens, not least because in places like Durham and Exeter, there had been um, rebellion against the new Norman King, William I. Mm. Well, um, when I think of a Roman fort, I, I think of something with actually relatively... Uh, low walls spanning a uh, an encampment or or a or a, or a, um, a, a small Roman town. Whereas when I think of the medieval, the early medieval castle, I think of something which is uh, a bit more squat but with higher walls. Is that in essence just referring to what you were just saying about you know, that kind of castle not being entirely typical? Um, or actually, is it a, a more general feature of medieval um, castle building to, to go high? And if so, why? Well, that's, again, a really interesting question. Let's make the general point and then the specific point. The general point I'd make is that for any one period, there is no one template for fortification. So if one think, sorry, if one's thinking of the present day, where you would find around the world most, let's say, police stations are fortified or most army bases are fortified, the actual means that they use vary greatly uh, for a range of a whole sort of lot of factors, uh, socio-cultural factors, political cultures, uh, the nature of what's accepted in terms of the use of firepower, the local building materials, the nature of the general topography of the sites. Um, and that indeed, those criteria were also true in the past. Now, in the case of the Romans, um, 
I think it's fair to say the Romans could build fairly tall. Um, and um, there were, of course, Roman walled cities uh, as well as legionary bases. There are legionary bases of one thing. That's, in other words, where a Roman army base is, is located, which may or may not also be a city. Uh, one's thinking of a place like Cologne there. Or there are Roman positions which were not legionary bases, but which were fortified. London is an example of that. Um, and then on top of that, I think it's fair to say that with the Romans, you get the, as it were, the use of building freestanding fortifications that were part and parcel of um wider defensive zones such as Hadrian's Wall or the forts of the Saxon uh, shore. I think what one's got with the Romans is to think in terms of a defensive system that often was a matter of protecting particular topographical features. So that, what do I mean by that? If you can see, say, Hadrian's Wall, you will know that one of the most impressive features there is the section near Halsteads, which goes on top of a volcanic sill. So in other words, an intrusion of igneous rock, which provides greater height um, and therefore defensiveness. Um, that's not always available. I mean, if you're looking at the Roman fortifications on the uh, forts of the Saxon shore in England, places like Richborough, you don't have that height. Um, so a lot would depend, as indeed was later the case. I mean, this is not unique to the Romans or indeed to the medieval period. A lot depends upon the nature of the building material available. A lot depends upon what you might actually have in terms of the surface and subsurface geology uh, and the ability to actually bear weight. Now, um, uh, that is not uniform. Um, and if you're thinking about medieval castles, you would be correct to say that the keep features were often quite high. You'd be absolutely right in that. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the, the walls of the bailey, so-called, were often not so high, although they might be made higher by benefiting from a physical feature that existed naturally or artificially outside them. An artificial one might be a dug moat, for example, a ditch dug to allow water to be in it. Of course, you might also have a natural moat, a part of a river or um, um, a lake or something like that. So in other words, the very local sensation of height is often a result of the very local capability of topography. And the kind of line which, as you may know, is often run out to discuss the changes with gunpowder. In other words, tall castles, vulnerable feet, of the, sorry, vulnerable lower sections of the castles brought down by cannon fire, therefore you move to lower level fortification. Well, what I would say is it's not quite as simple as that, and one does need to think of local topographical features. Right, I see. Well, many people greatly admire um, uh, architecturally and structurally the Crusader castles. Um, I wonder what, um, in Europe, what did the castle builders learn uh, from the experience of the Crusades. Did that lead to a new design of castle, which was then transported back to Europe? And uh, were, um, were uh, Muslim fortresses built according to any different principles 
to Crusader fortresses. Well, there you go. That's very interesting. I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Crusades, which is an area of transmission in weapons systems between East and West. Let us make us clear that is not unique to the Crusades. You can see uh, the Byzantine uh, um, forces as a form of um, transition. And also, one has to be very careful with all societies to note the autonomy within them of developments, as well as looking uh, to cultural tr transmission from outside. I mean, I think what I would say is that if you're looking to the areas we would now call Syria, Lebanon and Israel, I'm well aware there's a whole host of questions about how we should use those terms. If we were to use, look at those areas, a lot of the fortifications, in fact, were city fortifications that went back uh, to Roman cases uh, had been kept going by the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, had then been kept going by the successor uh, Islamic states that wished to uh, maintain control, the Abbasids uh, most obviously, and what we would now call Syria, um, the Fatimids from Egypt pushing north into what we would see as Israel. And that to a certain extent, that pattern of urban fortification, of which the absolute exemplar to Europeans, and one, of course, they were to be made, Western Europeans, I should say, much more aware of during the Crusades, was Byzantium. Um, it's Byzantium. I mean, obviously, there are other places, Aleppo, um, uh, Antioch, uh, Damascus, Jerusalem itself, all of which are urban fortifications. But the absolute quintessential one, and remember, aside from the Fourth Crusade, which in 1204 um, famously took Constantinople, many other crusaders, uh, First Crusade, Third Crusade, went through um, um, Constantinople, and were able to see, you know, the great Theodosian walls, etc., 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 which were still there. Parts of them still are there, as you all know. And you know, they, much of that had been built in the fourth century. Um, so, in a way, it's not a sense, and I think this is a very significant point. It is not a sense that new is necessarily better. Um, having said that. Um, there were, um, in some of the uh, Crusader fortifications, I mean, the most famous example is Crack, which I discuss in my Fortifications and Siegecraft book, which had particular defensive techniques that helped or were thought to help against assailants, not least the idea that once the assailants got in, there was going to be defense in debt, that there is not, you know, the classic pattern, of course, is once they've breached the bailey, you retreat to the keep um, and try and hold out there and whilst negotiating bluntly terms. Um, crack, like a number of um, uh, castles in the Near East, had notions of what we might call intermediary um, and interlocking defence systems. Uh, but I wouldn't say that's particularly unique. I think it's developed in the Crusades because you've got the resources to do so and the need to do so. There's only a relatively small number of Crusaders for most of the period, and they are defending themselves against larger forces. And the castles appear as a defensive force enabler. Now, I've got to be careful here 
When something goes badly wrong, like the, defa the defeat of the forces of the Kingdom of Jerusalem at the Battle of Hattin, then most, not absolutely every single one, but most of the fortresses are fall immediately afterwards. In other words, if your field army is destroyed, you don't have any real hope of relief. Therefore, all the castle can really do is impose a certain delay on your attacker invader whilst you negotiate terms. Um, it is easiest in that context uh, to hold on um, on castles that are by the coast. Classically, Acre is a place that is by the coast, because you can hope for relief in that terms, which, of course, is what makes the Fourth Crusade so threatening to Byzantium, because, and the same uh, for Mehmed II's attack on Byzantium, Constantinople in 1453, because each of the invaders in that case brings naval superiority, so there's no chance of relief. One of the key elements for the Crusades, which I think tends to be underrated um, is that they were not just dependent at a strategic level on naval power and the dominance of the Eastern Mediterranean by Christian naval forces, but they're also dominant for both attack and defense. Sorry, they're also dependent for both defense and attack at the tactical and operational level on this naval strength. Without that naval strength, a castle can only do so much. In Europe, um, should we think in terms of medieval warfare, I mean, we often think in terms of pitched battles, but most medieval warfare was actually laying siege to castles and walled towns? Again, an excellent question. And indeed, that is true, not just of the medieval period, um, you could also say, for instance, that uh, it was true to a degree of early modern warfare, which we'll discuss in the subsequent programme, but also, um, and in, not just in Britain, in places like Japan or India, um, it is also the case that battles in the field are significant in large part through giving oneself the opportunity to try through negotiation or some other means to seize castles. That if you win a battle in the fields, let's say Selim the First, Selim the Grimm's battle victory over Shah Ismail of the Safavids at Chaldron in 1514. So that's the Ottomans invading the Safavid Persia. Really important battle, but actually doesn't work out because there aren't the consequences that might have been anticipated in that reason, number of factors, why late in the year, a whole host of reasons. Uh, same issue, in fact, for George II's victory at Dettingen in 1743 over the French. Now, so in other words, um, if we're going, if we're winding back, um, battle can be extremely important for clearing the field of opponents. If your opponents then aren't going to surrender, they're going to hold out, maybe because they have sufficient supplies, maybe because they can be relieved by water, uh, maybe because they fear slaughter if you capture them, a whole host of reasons. Then there is a enormous problem posed on the attacking force in the sense that how is it going to support itself? 
Um, for most of history, and as you may know, I've just brought out a book on logistics. For most of history, history logistics is a key problem at the tactical, operational, and strategic level. And you, as it were, provoke a logistic crisis for an attacking force if you can sustain a defence through a castle, through guerrilla action, doesn't have to be a castle, through maintaining on the defensive and refusing battle. There's a whole host of techniques you can use. If you are thinking about specifically, but remember, this is not the only factor, if you're thinking specifically about sitting in a castle, then not only are you provoking a logistical crisis for your assailant, you may also be imposing on them the problems of disease because they're going to be sitting outside um, uh, in insanitary circumstances, um, you know, excreting and all over the place, which is going to probably cause dysentery as it gets into the water system, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a big wasting factor. I mean, it affected, for example, the Emperor Charles V's siege at Metz. Um, you can also try and hang on till winter. Winter is harder for besiegers. Not only are there going, is there going to be far less food around, any movement of supplies is going to be much more difficult. Disease may be more of a problem for troops sleeping essentially in the open, and the ground will be harder to work for them if they're trying to drink to dig siege works. Um, and indeed, if it's raining in the autumn, and perish the thought it might actually rain in Britain in the autumn, if it's raining in the autumn, any undermining uh, operations they're trying to do will, is likely to fill up with water. So there's a number of factors which can ensure that if you hold your nerve, you can still do very well resting on the defensive. And of course, what you're often trying to do, because remember, the modern notion of, of war, which we get from World War II, of absolute victory, um, was not always the pattern, okay? Um, and it's not always the pattern today, of course. So that what you would often be hoping to do was persuade your opponent, however successful or unsuccessful they might be, but particularly if they're successful in battle, to say, look, yeah, okay, you've beaten us but you haven't captured any of our important positions. And we know your army is wasting away whilst you sit outside wherever we are, let's say Antwerp. So why don't we talk about things? Um, and I think it's fair to say that from that point of view, castles could well be worth it. They're part of the economy of international relations. They're also part of the economy of internal relations. We began quite rightly, because I mean, obviously we're in Britain, so we need to talk about it. We began by talking about uh, the situation in the medieval period in the British Isles. Well, let us say you are a rebellious noble um, and you are launching a either an attempt to overthrow the crown, maybe to you know, change the identity of the monarch, but also just maybe that you wish things, the patronage, whatever, to work out differently. And you've been unsuccessful in battle. You might well choose to resist siege in the hope that this will encourage your opponent to negotiate. It doesn't always work. It didn't work, for example, in the Barons' War of 
1264 to 66 in England, at the end of which, um, and I seem to remember, you know, the Montford supporters are besieged by Henry III's army at Kenilworth, and, you know, <laughs> Henry III isn't interested in negotiating. He wants exemplary punishment. But in other cases, it can work, partly because you might have so many castles, and they might be so strong, think of the Douglases in southwest Scotland, that you remain in play. Yes, you lose castles, but unless they can kill you and kill your heirs, uh, you're still in play. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, if you think about that, it's one element um, which was captured very well, although he was writing in a later period, of course, by Shakespeare's discussion in Macbeth, because the notion of killing all the heirs, all the line, uh, whether it's Banquo or Macduff or whatever, is actually absolutely opposite. It is that which is going to get you to be more successful than whether you specifically capture an individual castle or not. Well, I'm very interested in this question because it, it does strike me. I can obviously see the logic in in taking strategically important towns and ports which are fortified, uh, and in uh, laying siege to castles which are in the way of um, an army's uh, supply line. But uh, many of armies which are largely foraging. I mean, how significant are their supply lines? What, why the need to take castles? which don't particularly threaten an army's ability to invade a land, unless, as you say, it's in order to take the, the troublesome uh, landowner, um, Earl, Aristocrat, whatever he is, is, is part of the, of the political chess game. Well, that, again, is really interesting. And actually, that taps into uh, debates between... Uh, America, sorry, between, um, well, in fact, many of them are American, between medieval um, military historians. As you may recall, last time we were talking, we discussed the question of the scale of Carolingian armies. And I mentioned, for example, Bernie Bachrach, who's argued very much in terms of very large armies, very elements of sophistication, continuity from the Roman pattern. Um, such an army would of course found it very difficult to support itself in the field and would have required a logistical train, not least for what we might call its artillery, its siege engines. On the other hand, there are other scholars, there's very good work by Cliff Rogers on the Hundred Years' War, other scholars who've argued that the pattern of the large raid, like the Black Prince's one, which ends up at Poitiers in 1356, or you might call um, the, you know, the, the uh, Danes in, in England in 875, you know, the Grand Army and how that moved around the place, Great Army and how that moved around the place. Um, the argument there would be that they are of a smaller scale and are better able to support themselves. Now, in the case of the debate about English tactics and English operational method in France, there is an argument that the purpose of raiding was to force the French, because they didn't want to see the destruction of their country, to come out of their castles, where they were essentially safe, well-supplied, um, and in a sense benefiting from their defences, and fight in the open. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that might well have been a technique that is more common 
than uh, possibly we we allow for. I mean, if what you're trying to do is provoke battle, then a castle is a real problem. And a foraging raid, however destructive, however you might enjoy it, is not going to produce the outcome you want. If, on the other hand, what you want to simply do is to demonstrate to people that you are a problem and a threat and be bought off, whether it's something like Dane Guild in in um, in England under Ethelred the Unready, literally money, um, or whether it's some other benefit. Um, the argument, for example, Thomas Barfield's work on um, uh, relations between Ch Chinese and the nomads from the steppes argues, he argues in his uh, work that um, that in essence, the purpose of these attacks are to force the Chinese to maintain the subsidy treaties they've agreed to by, as it were, the exchange of presents in which they give a lot of money to the steppe nomads in order to tell them to go away. Um, and I mean, again, one must always look below and beyond the texts. And you could argue the same thing is true today. I mean, you you could argue, if you wish to be really harsh, uh, that in essence, in the 1960s and 1970s, British governments bought off rampaging mobs of trade, violent trade unionists by paying them, as it were, the equivalent of Danegeld. Not that the Danes would ever have behaved so badly. Um, I mean, modern Danes, I'm not talking about those of the 8th and 9th century. Um, so, you know, that's another way to look at it. It's partly a question that one of the difficulties in military history, and I've tried to discuss that in my book on the causes of war and on this new book on war, a global history. One of the problems is that there is a pattern of arguing that there is a fundamental state of warfare uh, which, what a surprise, is usually the one the author likes to write about. And that that fundamental uh, stage is what we ought to write about. Everything else is a sort of, sort of, you know, failing from it, a palimpsest dependent on the diffusion of ideas and methods or a failure, whatever. And therefore... Um, we have to consider military techniques, which would include fortification and therefore the defense of fortifications or indeed the attack on fortifications as, as an aspect of this clear-cut model. And what I'm suggesting, and I tried to demonstrate that in my book on forts and uh, fortifications, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that notion is... Um, wrong empirically, which I think it is, but much more dangerous than that, it is very wrong conceptually and methodologically, because it carries with it a clear implication of what military tasking should be, what military force structure should be. And I would actually argue that one of the purposes of reading military history is you see the limitations, that's being polite, of adopting that technique for modern military affairs. Now, winding back to medieval raids, you, as you will know, there were a range of military techniques used by what we might call, um, not how, how should we want to call it, because these days one's got to be very careful about the use of any language that implies primitivization. Let's just put it like this, that the state structures, governmental structures, um, among, let's say, the Magyars, the Hungarians, the Vikings, 
um, were different to those, shall we say, of, or indeed, if we're looking at the earliest, you also the early Seljuk Turks, the early Ottoman Turks, were different to those of more settled societies. Doesn't mean they were worse, doesn't mean they were better. They were different. And these uh, societies, again, we've got to be very careful not to have an environmental determinism, but these societies, with their um, use often of uh, means of mobility, which in the case of the um, last three, and indeed of the Mongols is a question of horses, but in the case of the Vikings, is it, it's really ships. Um, this mobility means that they have the capacity to attack in a broad way um, with deep penetration, holding a society to ransom. Now, in that context, defensive fortifications both serves to protect the society and specifically delays the impact of the attacking group. Now, let's go for the first point. What we have to remember, and here, as you know, I've discussed this at length, and it irritates people, but I'm afraid to say they just have to put up with being irritated if they wish to understand the truth. Slavery does not begin with the Europeans, um, uh, you know, as far as Africa is concerned. Uh, a lot of the reason for warfare um, for much of history was the seizure of labour, not least because there were labour shortages, because labour was easy to move, you might well want to, um, to sell it, um, you might well want to use it yourself, you might in some cases want to incorporate it into your armies. Um, so one of the things you're doing with defensive positions is you're providing, and you very carefully and rightly through, you know, look back to the Iron Age, exactly the same with high Iron Age hill forts, you're pro pro providing pro positions in which you can protect your the members of your group, however you wish to define them, um, specifically your women folk, who after all are the key to actually sustaining your group, um, and also are often uh, what the, another society wishes to seize. I mean, a lot of slavery, not Atlantic slavery so much, a lot of slavery, let's say Ottoman slavery, was about sex slavery. But also you're trying to look after your animals. Um, so in a sense, fortification works there in terms of providing shelter and shelter which it would be difficult to attack without your assailants taking significant casualties and possibly being unsuccessful. And from that point of view, fortification is particularly useful I mean, you were asking about the 11th, 12th, 13th century, and that's obviously thinking of fortification as a state technique in England, as it were, new Norman conquest. But in fact, although we don't call them castles, the fortified boroughs, for example, which we associate with Alfred the Great in England in the um, late um, uh, ninth century, in which then are extended by his successors in the early 10th century, are all important because they, in effect, are fortified systems. Now, whether you want to call them a castle or not is another matter. They don't match our visual picture of a castle, but they actually fulfill the functions of what we would see as a castle. And I would say that the breakdown maybe using it too far a term, but let's say the collapse of the Carolingian order in Western Europe. So Charlemagne we were talking about last time, Charlemagne had through violence, 
brought a considerable degree of cohesion to the uh, situation in modern day France, Netherlands, Belgium, much of Italy, much of Germany, into Czechoslovakia, into northern Spain, a large area. Um, and, you know, there was a comparable situation of the Bretonvalde and overlord king um, in England, which in that period was the House of Mercia, most famously uh, with um, Offer and indeed with his successors. Now, that order breaks down in the ninth century. It breaks down in England. It breaks down across Western and Central Europe for a whole host of reasons. Divisions within systems, so the partitions of the Carolingian inheritance, but also externality pressures. And you might argue, if you wish to be heretical, that there were in inherent flaws to the idea of Carolingian cohesion over such a large space, irrespective of the external pressure it was under. But that's another issue. Now, from that point of view, you can argue that investment in defence, I mean, needs must, you know, whatever your method was, becomes more consequential from the ninth century. And that what we call the castle, as classically understood, is just an iteration of that system. Um, you know, it could be fortified churches, it could be fortified monastic settlements, it could be fortified towns, it could be standalone fortresses, it could be citadels within towns. You know, there's a whole... Or, it could be just parts of buildings or parts of building complexes which had a tower or had castellations. There's a whole range of what we can be talking about, but I think that there is a reason for them. Um, now, if you wind back to the uh, context in England, which you were asking about earlier, the key thing there is castles, I mean, as you know, there is now discussion about castles before the conquest. We're not going to talk about that now. There are clearly castles before the conquest. But let us say we're just looking at the main traditional narrative. Castles follow the conquest. Castles are a way of imposing control, either by the crown or by principal um, aristocratic families that are linked to the crown, people like the Malbris, for example. Uh, and they're also castles of the means of government so that, you know, the sheriff, a royal official, will have a castle in which he, it's always a he, can, you know, lock up people, preside over the town, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. Now, you might say, surely with time, that need becomes less because rebellion against the crown in the sense of some, you know, Anglo-Saxon recidivism declined markedly. But the point, of course, is that the Anglo, the, sorry, the Norman elite eventually becomes an Anglo-Norman elite, splits badly. There are wars. I mean, there's wars between um, the uh, the children of, uh, uh, of William I, for example, between Robert and Henry I in the 1100s. And on top of that, there are civil wars, of which the most obvious is the one at King Stephen's reign. And what that does is provoke the need for more castles and more 
Uh, and as it were, if you think about, I mean, there are other reasons why you build fortifications. Prestige is important. There's no doubt about that. You know, there's a lot of discussion how in Carnarvon there are elements, you know, uh, aping the Theodosian walls in Byzantium, et cetera, et cetera. But the main factor, without being crudely materialistic in the sort of neo-Marxist type, the main factor is the need to do it. Whether you put that need as economic or political, I would put it in both terms, but particularly political, uh, there is the need to do it. And that helps to explain why we identify the castle with the medieval period. Well, in the um, uh, later stages, second half of the medieval period, I'm wondering what's most successful in undermining castles, breaching the walls. Is it the, the siege engines? Is it mining under them? Uh, is it just uh, starving the uh, inhabitants to death, slowly strangling them from uh, from beyond? What what, what is the um, uh, with this really a consensus in scholarship? But what, what what is the prevailing view in scholarship as to uh, as to how, how uh, the larger castles in particular were uh, um, were were undermined? Well, that's again a fascinating question. Um... And I think we really need to discuss that in our broader question about medieval warfare. But let me simply say that, as I've already indicated, I would be very wary of an interpretation which simply argued that you use gunpowder and castles become redundant. I'd be very wary about that. And I think that the... Um, cross-cultural comparisons with India or with Japan, and indeed with fortresses, mostly urban fortresses and and walls, not um, standalone castles of China, suggest we need to be a little careful in our chronology here. Gunpowder comes in whilst castles remain valid. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that, even if you were to assume a technological determinism, which I'm wary of, but even if you were to do that, the capability of artillery for quite a time is quite limited. I mean, you may know I've written a book on European warfare 1450 to 1600, and in it I discuss the limitations of the French artillery with which Charles VIII invaded Italy in 1494 to 1495, which is usually taken as the acme of a new uh, a new military system, a new military age. And in fact, if you look at the individual sieges, that really isn't why places fell. Um, and it's not surprising. I mean, it's not not very effective what you could do with a cannon of that period. Well, we'll leave it there because I think to continue, we'll get into the world of Vauban and the uh, fortresses of the uh, uh, late 17th and 18th century, which is a uh, is subject for another day. But Professor Jeremy Black, whose books include Fort and uh, most recently A Short History of War. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.